We've been going through the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5, and so if you want to go ahead and if you have a Bible with you, turn in your Bible to that or flip to your phone or get on whatever app that you use. Um, or if you brought a handout, if you got a handout from outside, we have everything there as well. And the sermon title today is called, I'm calling it Two Sides of the Same Coin, because they were going to be talking about meekness. And meekness is, is a weird term. It's a word that we don't really use that much anymore. Um, I can't tell you the last time I heard someone use the word meek in a sentence. Um, and it's actually a very strange word when translated. It can mean a couple different things, depending on the translation of your Bible that you have. It could say, blessed are the humble. It could say, blessed are the gentle. Um, or it could say, blessed are the meek. And so there's a couple different ways, but I really want us to focus here on this specific word this morning of meekness and, and kind of what it means. And there's two meanings that both end up in the same place. But before we can really dive into that, I think we really need to explore the world in which Jesus was proclaiming this message to, which right in the middle of this sermon, he reads, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. And so to understand who Jesus is talking about is blessed, which Pastor Nathan touched on a couple Sundays ago, and enable for us to understand what the earth means, what earth are the meek inheriting, we have to understand where Jesus is coming from. And to understand where he's coming from, we have to take a little history course, we're going to have to travel back in time, and look at the culture in which Jesus is speaking to, which at the time... And that the first century we have the Romans that were occupying Israel and Jerusalem and all around where Jesus was at. And something cool that the, the Romans did that I think is pretty, like, intersects with kind of our society today is that they connected the world. That through the road systems, more people could travel to places where they couldn't normally travel. Because of the aqueducts, more people had clean water than ever. And so people had more availability to resources. They had more availability to each other. But what we see is that this is a very, very cutthroat society. This is a world that is all about status. It's all about power. It's all about who you are and who you know. And if you don't know anyone of power, or if you don't have any power, you're out of luck. You're at the bottom. And those who are above you that control your world, the place that you're living, do not care about you. They could care less. There was no welfare. There was no church system. There were no nonprofits. You were just out of luck. You had to work day in and day out. And if you were lucky enough to have some sort of status and power, you were trying to up the next person. You're trying to get more power. You're trying to get more authority and more influence. Because the more of that you gained, the more control you had over your world, over your experience. And so it was very, very cutthroat. And even to the point of some of the religious leaders at the time. While I was doing my studying this week, I ran across sort of a pre-Beatitudes sermon by a, a Jewish rabbi that was around about 150-ish years before Jesus. And I'm not going to read his entire 
Beatitudes, but there was two specific ones that stood out. And there was some that was like, blessed are those who are wise. And, and so there was some in there that you're like, okay, yeah, um, I can get with that. That makes sense. But there was two in particular here that were very interesting to me. One of them was, blessed is the one who doesn't serve an inferior. Blessed is the one who doesn't serve someone who is lower than them. If you don't have to do that, you are blessed. God's favor is with you. It's what this preacher was saying. Another one he said in here was, Blessed is the one who is important enough to be listened to. Or in other words, blessed are you if you are important enough for people to actually come and listen to what you had to say. And so this is the world that they were living in. And so you would go to the town square, to the synagogue, and you would hear these preachers say something along these, along these lines. And I want us to give them grace this morning. Because when you're in that circumstance, and that's how you survive, and you don't know any other way, then that's just how the way things are. And that's why it's so important that we have Jesus, and that Jesus comes in here and says what he has to say in particular here in the Sermon of the Mount, but his whole ministry, his whole life, his whole purpose. And so when we read blessed, and we hear that word, yes, it also translates as happy, but it also means that these are the people that we are holding up on a pedestal. As if someone goes into your workplace and says, hey, who is your example? Like, this is your best worker. Of This is who embodies the company and what we're about and what we do and your boss or supervisor goes and hopefully grabs you or grabs someone's like, this is it. This is the person. This person is blessed. This is the person who is doing everything right, who God is with, who this is who we strive to be. And so they were in a world where the people, if you didn't have to serve someone that was lower than you, if you saw someone on the side of the road with a sign that said anything helps, and you just drove on by, they would say, you are blessed. Blessed be you because you didn't have to deal with that person. Or if you have a large following on social media, or if you have a large following on whatever, if people want to listen to you, you're blessed because you're, guess what? You're important enough for people to want to listen to you. But that's not the people who Jesus was talking to on the Sermon of the Mount. We see very particularly, Matthew is very, very particular about who we want, who he wants us to see is who is at the feet of Jesus. And right before chapter 5, the end of chapter 4, Matthew speaks of these are the people who came to be close to Jesus, to hear what Jesus had to say, to hear what Jesus was about. And it was the people who were hurt, the people who were broken, the people who were downcast. The people who, in that day and age, they were the inferior. They were the people who no one cared what they had to say. They were the lowest of the low, and they came from everywhere. They came from Jerusalem. They came from um, the, the Gentile nations right outside. They came from Samaria. There was this giant melting pot of people who felt they were unimportant because they were taught and told that they were. They were told that they had no power. They had no control over their circumstances. A lot of them worked hard, 
jobs. Like you look at Peter as a fisherman, you think if he didn't have to be fishing every day that he would? He had to do it in order to provide for his family. And we have someone, the very author, Matthew. He was a tax collector before he became a disciple. Nobody liked tax collectors. Everyone hated them. They took more money than they were supposed to. Their Jewish brothers and sisters didn't like them because they were serving the very power that was oppressing them and pushing them down and the ones that were telling them that they were unimportant themselves. And so these are the people that are coming to hear from Jesus. And so I wanted to show it. And so this whole kingdom is, is an upside-down kingdom that Jesus is talking about. It's a kingdom that when Jesus comes and talks about it, it's the complete opposite of what is going down. And I couldn't find a better way to illustrate this than um, these two artists. They're named um, Tim and Susan. I don't know where they are. Sue Webster and Tim Noble. And they do these portraits. They do these silhouettes where they take things that are thrown out like scrap wood or scrap metal or trash. And what they do is they create beautiful silhouettes. And so I couldn't find like a before picture um, to show before this. But what you do is you walk into this dark room and then they have all like this pile of wood here in this case. And you're like, okay, this is weird. And then they turn the lights out and they turn them back on. And then you see this. And so when there's a different light that is shined on these pieces of, of wood and metal that were probably thrown out, is we see people. We see humanity. And Michael, you go ahead and change to the next one. This one's my personal favorite. Is here you have just piles and piles of garbage. You got McDonald's cups, you got Coca-Cola cans. I think that's a Fritos bag right there in the corner. And so you walk in, imagine just walking into that art exhibit and you just see all this trash laying there like, did I really pay $30 to go and, and look at someone else's trash? It's like, that has to be the easiest job ever. You just collect trash for a couple months and then you just throw it up there. It's like, yep, money please. Thank you. But then you turn on the light and you see a person laying in the trash. I believe this work of art is called Wasted Youth. And so this is kind of what Jesus is doing here with the Beatitudes, is he's taken these people, these concepts, this way of life, so you have been, you say those who don't have to deal with the unimportant are blessed, and what we're going to talk about this morning a little bit is Jesus actually says, no, it is you, the one who is unimportant, who has no control over your circumstances right now. You are the one who is blessed. You are the people who God's favor is with. You are the ones that God is drawing close to. And so that is the audience, originally, who Jesus is talking to. That doesn't mean that we cannot receive anything from that. I received a ton of insight and wisdom just from diving into this this week. That was really challenging because, to be completely honest, when I started reading that, I was like, I don't really fully connect with that audience. And that's okay. I don't think there might be some of us that do, but there might be a lot of us that don't. But I believe the Spirit really has something in store for us of what it means to be meek and how we can become blessed through that. And so talking about two sides of the same coin, <clears throat> I found this, um, I'm not going to lie, I found this on Google. 
for this definition, but it was just so beautiful and it was going along with everything that I was reading and meditating on. And, and somebody who was lucky enough to get their definition of this word on Google had this to say about meekness. Is that meekness is someone who does not have force or is someone who is willing to give in to others. So that's what I mean about two sides of the same coin. Is we have two different circumstances that will bring you to the same place if you let it. And so first and foremost, we have the first part of that definition, which is the unimportant. These were originally the people who were coming to Jesus. These are the people that Jesus was hanging around. He was hanging around the tax collectors, the prostitutes, the fishermen, all the people that the religious elite, those who had power, who if you had a question about God, you would go to one of them like, hey, I have a question about this in Leviticus. What does this law mean? And they would tell you. Maybe, if they liked you, but they would tell you what it means. But the big difference is, is that there's a huge difference between knowing about God and actually knowing God. There is a huge, mungus difference between the two, and it's something that I have fallen into in my life, of where I could say, well, I know all about God in this sense, or I know what Paul meant when he said this in Ephesians But if I and if we are not spending intimate time with our creator and we're not being purposeful with that, there is not going to be a spark. It's going to be a more I have to do this than I get to do this. And so when we talk about feeling unimportant, it's coming to this realization of knowing that I have no control. There are 99 things that I cannot control. There may be that one that I can, but most of my life there are things that I cannot do. We realize that we have no power and where there's nothing that we can do about it. I think Jeremiah the prophet speaks wonderfully here about what this looks like and even how to honestly bring this to God when we read in Jeremiah chapter 12 when he says, Lord, you always give me justice when I bring a case before you. So let me bring this complaint. Why are the wicked so prosperous? Or why are the people that are doing the opposite of what you said to do, of opposite of the life that you call us to live, why are they getting everything that they want? Why are they successful? Why are evil people so happy? You have planted them, and they have taken root and prospered. Your name is on their lips, but you are far from their hearts. You are far from their hearts. Jeremiah, in particular here, he's talking about the the priest and all the religious elite in his day, which they were on the verge of being exiled to Babylon. Babylon was on their doorstep. They were knocking. And Jeremiah was trying to tell him, like, hey, this is about to happen, and this is what we need to do. And all the priests and uh, the the smart people of that day were like, no, no, don't listen to Jeremiah, he's crazy. We need to do this. And the people listened to them and not Jeremiah. Jeremiah actually lived a horribly hard life. He was, I think, at one point thrown in the bottom of a well for him standing for what God was telling him to preach to his people 
He was looked at, he was looked down on, he was spat upon. People probably didn't like Jeremiah that much. And so Jeremiah here is coming honestly to God, as I think Jesus' original audience, the people that he was talking to were coming to him. Those who with leprosy had to live on, at the edge of the gates of town, just begging for people to look at them, to look at them as a person. Of those who day in and day out work their tails off, and then they go to the tax collector's booth, and they give, ask for triple the amount that they don't even have and are thrown in jail. And so I think Jeremiah embodies the spirit of honesty with God and coming with a complaint and being like, why is this happening? You said this is, not, this is the opposite of what you said would happen. You said those who are righteous and who are wise and walk in your ways, those are the people who are to be blessed. And those are the people who that good things are supposed to happen to. And that the people who walk away from you, that hurt people, that trample people, that justice will be brought upon them. And that they will be like, like grass, like here today and gone tomorrow, and the righteous will live forever. Why isn't it like that? Why is it the opposite? But I think something important to take away here, if this is where you find yourself this morning, if you find yourself as, I am not in control, I have no power, I have no influence, I'm just living day to day asking God to give me my daily bread just to make it through the day. Because what Jesus says here is that not you are going to be blessed, but you are. You are already blessed right where you are. Because the position that you're in that may seem helpless at the moment, your heart is being molded in a way for you to accept God and to follow God in ways you never thought that you could. You never thought you had the strength to do so because God gives you that strength. You're looking for new things. You're more open-minded because you're like, I just got to get out of this pit. I got to get out of this hole that I dug myself. It is in those very moments that you are blessed because you are more ready to receive what God is willing to offer you. And Psalm 37 is a beautiful psalm to read if you find yourself in this place because it's a psalm at the end of David's life where he is giving wisdom to the next generation. And it's very similar to, to this part of the Beatitudes because it's not going to be immediate. It's going to be a process. There's going to be some suffering and some hard times in the in-between. But in verse 11 of Psalm 37, David says, the lowly will possess the land, not the wicked, not those with all the money, not with those with all the power here, but the lowly will possess the land and will live in peace and prosperity. And so if you find yourself there this morning, you're already blessed. Just wait. We're here to walk with you. We are here to walk with you by your side. Jesus has been walking by your side, even if you haven't felt it, because God is there. And then we move on. This is honestly the more challenging part of our time together today, is the other side of this coin, right? And so we had those who have no force, or they don't have any power over their world around them, or we have the people who are willing to give in to others, are willing to give up their power for others. But when we don't do that, I call 
those of us, when we're in this stage of life, the status chasers. And this, this really hit me hard, God, brothers and sisters, because I have been here a lot. Where I am chasing something that I feel like I have to reach this point, or I have to have this job, or I have to live in this place, or do this. I have to plan on every moment of my life, and if I'm off 1%, I've failed. Because really what that is is just like trying to grab for control. It's thinking if I can get myself to this point, if I can really get that job, or if I can become this specific person, everything is going to fall into place. And let me tell you, it doesn't. I, I'll, I'll be pretty vulnerable this morning. I had a, and this is a weird dream to have, in my opinion, or calling to have, but I always felt called to, to teach, and at one point even to, with teenagers. And I, there was a point when I was a senior in high school where I went to this, this church camp up in Nashville, and it was a, a youth ministry luncheon. And I go in just because I had some of my friends go, and they were talking about the program there and what they do, and I just felt something push me, of this is where I need to go, this is where I need to be, this is what I want to do. And I think that was honest. I think that was God pushing me to do that. But what happened was, is that then instead of looking and trusting in God for most of the time, I went and I looked at people who were successful as youth ministers in my circle of churches I grew up in. I grew up Church of Christ. And I don't know about many other um, denominations, but Church of Christ youth ministry is huge. It's a huge business there. It's normally like, one in particular person is normally a guy and they're super enthusiastic and they're like, we do all these big trips and we do all this fun stuff and we have all these big programs. And so I looked at those people and those were the people who were being successful, even though I was learning in my classes of what really what you need to do is you need to work on getting to know the people you're with. Is being intimate of knowing who you are serving, the church that you're in, the people that you are serving. That is what matters, not the big programs. I was like, yeah, but those are the ones with hundreds of kids, and they look like they're having a lot of fun. And my mentor at the time, that's how he ran his youth ministry. And I'm like, this is how I have to do it. And then I got the job. I got the job that I thought I always wanted, that I dreamed for. And that's the whole reason I moved to Pensacola, was to go and do that. And it was great the first year and a half, and then I hit a wall. And it was, I felt this immense amount of guilt because I felt like everything was supposed to be perfect, and it wasn't. There were parts of it that I saw in that role that I made mistakes. I learned some of the ugly side of church in that way, which I'm thankful for now, and I'm so blessed to be where I'm at. I'm just being honest. But it wasn't all that it was cut out to be. And I was devastated because I thought, this is what I thought I was always supposed to be doing, God. Why? Why am I here when I feel like I shouldn't be doing this? This is everything that I thought that you wanted for me, but really what I was saying is this is everything that I wanted. Why is it the way that I want it to be? Because, folks, that's what happens. I mean, we look at certain characters in the Bible, certain people in the Bible, I think of three in particular. I think of Joseph, I think of David, and I think of Peter. You know, we have Joseph, 
who's the youngest of all his brothers like David was. And he was a shepherd, right? He had great gifts of interpreting dreams, but he's a little bit cocky. Enough to where his brother's like, oh, yeah, we're going to like kill you. And their older brothers had to talk him out of it. And so he gets shipped off to Egypt as a slave. And so he becomes the favorite son of his father, a shepherd to a slave. And he becomes a pretty good one under the person that he's serving. And then we won't go into the story, but something the wife wants to um, go get coffee with him. We'll just say that. And he's like, no, 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 I don't do that. And she gets him thrown in jail. And so then he goes from a shepherd to a slave to a prisoner, and then he gets his chance to use his gift in front of Pharaoh, and then he becomes the second most powerful man in Egypt. And it's not to say of, oh, look at how far he came, and this is like the peak of what he had in, God had in store for him. Is God used him in every single moment, every single position, every single job he had in order to fulfill God's promise to his people. David is the same way, also the youngest of all of his brothers, also a shepherd. Dad didn't even invite him to the banquet, didn't even invite him to the party when Samuel the prophet came to see who was going to be the next king. He was out in the field. He didn't even know about it, maybe. And so then he becomes a great warrior. He becomes a musician and close to the royal family, to then becoming a fugitive, on the run, living in caves, not knowing what day was going to be his last, to becoming probably the greatest king Israel ever had. And again, it's not that we go shooting forward like, oh, he went from shepherd boy to king. Man, that's what we need to shoot for. We have some of the best and deep psalms of lament from the times where David was on the run, the times where David was struggling. God was working through each and every part, and each and every part is unique and different and special, but no, neither one is greater than the last. And then we have Peter. Peter was a fisherman, right? In this age that we're talking about, of, with Roman captivity, where probably he, we don't know much about Peter, but we know that fishing was not the most fun profession at that time. It was hard, grueling work. Had to stay up all night. And when Jesus runs into Peter, they weren't doing too hot. Business was about to go bankrupt. And so Jesus says, give up everything and come follow me. And so he basically becomes a college student on, on the move for a couple years. He gives up everything. He was married. He said, nope, I'm going. I'll come and visit sometimes, but I'm going to go follow this guy. And he does good sometimes just like we do, and then he falls short other times. But then we see near the end of his life, he is one of the main leaders in the early church. God was using Peter, just like those other two, through every single moment. And this is why it's so dangerous to play this game, is when Jesus talks to his disciples in Luke 14. So starting in verse 7, when Jesus noticed that all who had come to the dinner were trying to sit in the seat of honor or sit at the head of the table, so it's basically they're walking in to have dinner and they're all like, okay, well, I'm going to sit next to Jesus on his right hand, well, I'm going to sit on his left, or I'm going to sit in this chair right next to that so that way I can tell Jesus what I think we should be doing in Galilee next week. And they were all like hustling and bustling, trying to 
sit closer to Jesus, trying to sit in the most important seat. And what Jesus says is, stop. Let me give you some advice. When you're invited to a wedding feast, don't sit in the seat of honor. What if someone who is more distinguished than you, ouch, Jesus, has also been invited? The host will come and say, give this person your seat, and then you will be embarrassed and have to take whatever seat is left at the foot of the table. Instead, take the lowliest place at the foot of the table. Then, when your host sees you, he will come and say, friend, we have a better place for you. And then you will be honored in front of all the other guests. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. And that's not to say, I, I used, this is what I used to think of this passage when I was a kid. It's like, okay, well, if I just act really humble, and I like go ahead and take this seat, then I'm going to get what I want. And that, I don't think that's what Jesus is talking about here. Is Jesus is saying, when you walk into a room, when you walk into a wedding feast in this sense, your mind shouldn't be, and your heart shouldn't be in a place of, how can I make myself the most important person here? Or, or like, I remember, this reminds me, this is so funny, I'm thinking about this right now, but who remembers, like, first day of orientation at school, when you go in, normally you would dress really nice. I feel like such a jerk, but I would go in there and I would say, like, you know what, who, who am I cooler than in this room? Like, okay, yeah, he's definitely, like, less cool than me. I'm good to go. Okay, I probably will be the coolest kid in the class. My teacher's going to love me. This is awesome. But that's, like, what, how I naturally thought. It's funny to say it now, but that's, that's the first example. That's what's happening here with Jesus is they're ranking themselves in order of who is most important, which is natural because that's the world that they live in. That's all that they know. And Jesus is trying to gracefully... And sometimes, like, really push them, say, hey, guys, guess what? That's not what it's about. And you've heard me teach about this. When you walk into one of these places, you should feel and you should take the place of the least important person. You should take the place of the least important person. So that when you are noticed, you're, not only are you not embarrassed, but you, and you don't even go get to sit in the seat of honor, but people see that humility, and they wonder where that humility comes from. They start asking questions of, you know, I know Bill is a successful small business owner, and I don't understand why he gives this much money away. I don't understand why he's this generous. I don't understand why he doesn't act like a big macho man when he walks in the room and he still buys the socks from Walmart. I need to figure out where this is coming from. It's from where the, that curiosity and those questions that we can really share the gospel to those around us. But part of that is taking a risk. And so for us to be meek, we have to take a risk and open ourselves up to what God wants to offer. David, in order to get to the place of not being a shepherd anymore, he had to take a risk. He had to go fight Goliath, this giant dude. Peter had to take a risk. He had to give up everything. He had to give up his fishing business. He had to leave his family. But he took the risk. 
And so friends, take the risk. I guarantee you it's worth it because guess when we try to get these jobs and we chase after these things that we think that we want and we pursue after them, I'll go ahead and tell you, you're probably going to reach there. You're probably going to get it if you try hard enough. But when you get there and you finally hold that treasure in your hand, you're going to look at it. It's going to be great. It's going to be awesome. You're going to celebrate it. There's going to be something missing. There's always going to be something missing. Because I believe there's always something more in store. And when we are aligned with God and we are walking closely with God, the more that we receive is life. The more that we receive is blessing. The more that we receive is goodness. And we get to see God's work in the world. But when it's for ourselves, we crave just more. We still have that craving. But we fill it with other things that don't fill us up. And so it's just this life of consuming, 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 consuming with nothing to show for it. And oftentimes that's the safer route. And so friends, if this is where you find yourself this morning, take the risk. It looks terrifying. I know it looks really scary. And it's probably not going to be that rewarding right off the bat. But when you really, really try to get to see who God is and who God's character is and who Jesus is, you will inherit so much more than you could ever imagine. There's always something more. It just comes with a risk. And so then we get, so we've talked about meekness. We've talked about the two sides of that coin. And now we talk about the earth. And so we read again, it's like, Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. But what earth are they talking about? And I believe that the earth that Jesus is talking about is not simply just the world at large. Like you're not going to become the supreme world ruler if you are meek. But going back to what we talked about, this upside down kingdom, Jesus was announcing and is announcing today something new is happening A new world is coming into being where when you're mourning, when you're at your lowest spot, God is with you and you are blessed. This world is something that, and Jesus is talking about the kingdom of God is coming. That's the world Jesus is talking about. And when we read and when we say the Lord's prayer of may your will be done here on earth, as it is in heaven, it's not that we can just get two heavens, it's that heaven is coming into one with earth. I love what Eugene Peterson, who translated the message, this is how he translates Matthew 5, 5. He says, you are blessed when you are content with just who you are, no more, no less. That is the moment you will find yourselves proud owners everything that cannot be bought. Everything that cannot be bought. And so this life is a new life that we can live right now. It's not something that we have to wait on. It's not something, well, if I wait till the day that I die and then I give my life to Jesus, then I'll go to heaven. Jesus is saying, no, no, no. 
I want you to experience heaven right now. Because it's here. It's here for the taking. And it's when you find yourselves in these places, these spaces of hurt and of sorrow, and of where you, you know that you can really like speak in to a situation, but you feel God's hugging you back, you release that power. But we don't know how to do that unless we are close to Jesus. And so, and Paul encourages us in Ephesians, put on your new nature, kind of like clothes. Take off your old clothes, put on your new clothes, your new nature, created to be like God, truly righteous and holy. I know those are two churchy words, but basically, righteous is living in right relationship with God and with people, doing right by someone. Holy is set apart. You are set apart from what is currently going on. You are a part of something new that is happening. So that's why Jesus is saying rejoice and be glad because there is newness here and it's on the way. There's more that is coming. To close this morning, I want to close with, with a story that talks about what happens. And this, I think this guy was, was more of a, a status chaser. He was the younger son his dad was very wealthy. He one day goes to his dad and says, Dad, I want my inheritance. I want everything you owe me. Everything that you have that you've been saving up for the day that you die, I want it now. It's basically him saying, you're as good as dead to me. I want to go live the way I want to live. You'll never see me again. Just give it to me and I'm out. And so the father does. He gives him what his inheritance, what he thinks that he wants, and he goes out. He goes out into the world, and he lives wildly. He parties. He spends all of it. He makes crazy investments in crypto that he probably shouldn't have done. Goes and buys thousands of lottery tickets, you name it, whatever. Goes to Vegas, I don't know. And he's living the life that he thinks that he wants. He is controlling his situation. He's controlling his world. It's, he's shaping it into his own image, just how he likes it. And guess where he finds himself? In a pen full of pigs. Who in, in the Jewish culture were considered an unclean animal. And not only that, he was eating what they were eating. Which if you know pigs, they eat everything. He was so poor and down on his luck, he was eating that. And that's where his home was. That was what he was consuming. He went from important to unimportant. And that's why this is two sides of the same coin. Because no matter where you find yourself in one of those, you're going to end up in the same place if you're not careful. And so he finally comes to his senses and says to himself, okay, well, I'm tired of this. My father's servants, the men and women who work for him, they do way better than how I'm doing. So I'm just going to go back. I'm just going to beg. I'm not going to beg to be his son again. I don't deserve that. I'm just going to beg that I can work for him and make a good living wage, live out the rest of my days, and maybe see where it goes from there. 
And so he takes that risk, he takes that courage, and he gets up and he starts walking. And I know if I was him, I'd be just like going through it in my mind of what I'm going to say. And it's like, well, okay, well, let me be, no, 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 not like that. Okay, let's rephrase it, back it up. He's thinking about it. He's not knowing how his dad's going to receive him. If he's going to reject him, the worst thing he could say is no. But he sees something he could never imagine. Not only did his dad see him, his dad was on the front porch waiting. He's been waiting every single day to see his son again. His son had wronged him absolutely, but he didn't lose hope. He was waiting at the door, and when he saw his son coming, he didn't wait for him to come back and be like, well, he's going to have to earn it. No, he goes off sprinting. He's pulling up his, his clothing because they wore like, I don't know, like weird tunics or something back then. And he's running as fast as he can and he embraces his son. And his son, like through tears, is trying to say everything that he had rehearsed in his head of, I just, can, can I be a, a servant and work for you? And his dad's like, no. Tonight, we are throwing a party. We're throwing a celebration because my son, who is lost, has been found. He is home. He is home. God just wants us to come home. That's what meekness is. It's laying down this power that we think that we have in order to shape our reality the way that we want it. It's the very same sin that Adam and Eve fell for. It's a... It's a a limb that trips us up that has been there for thousands of years. So you're not alone. But I think what we can learn here is that if we can have the courage and take that first step back, God is not just going to meet us halfway. He's going to meet us before we even get down the driveway. There will be rejoicing. There will be singing. There will be so much celebration, as Jesus says in the end here, for one lost soul than 99 righteous. So come home. Just come back home. It's where you belong. It's where we all belong. We're in the arms of our Creator now and forever. We can experience it now. We don't have to wait. I don't care what you've done. God just wants you to come back to his house. Because even though that sometimes we mess up and we don't feel like it, Jesus thought that you, each of us, were literally someone to die for. He's thought of each of you as someone literally to die for. And we may not think that we're worth much sometimes, but that is not the way that Jesus sees you. He humbled himself and took on the burden of your sins so that you don't have to. And something that's really interesting about the word meek in Greek, it's only used four other times, and most of it is in Matthew's gospel. And so we read it here in Matthew 5, and then we read it in Matthew 11, 
And so as we close this morning, will you close your eyes? I want to read this as a prayer over all of us of knowing that Jesus isn't asking us to do something that we cannot attain to. That Jesus himself did this very thing. Jesus here is is talking to those who are thinking that they're they're trying to feel that they are more important and he says to the teachers of the law who are trying to bog people down with all these laws and regulations this is what you have to do to get right with God this is what Jesus says he says come to me come home all of you who are weary and carry heavy burdens and I I will give you rest take my yoke upon you let me teach you because I am humble I am meek and I am gentle at heart and you will find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy to bear and my burden is light so Jesus we love you May us take that step today, even if it's a small one closer to you. Knowing we don't have to have it all together or knowing that we absolutely don't have it together at all. That you are constant, you are good, and you fulfill your promises. And so I pray for each and every one of these souls here this morning. I just pray that we come home. We come home to you, Jesus. And we find joy dwelling in your presence. That our inheritance is when we share your story, we share our story, and we see others experience freedom and celebrate with them. That is our inheritance. It's something that we cannot buy, something that we cannot touch, we cannot put a price on. But it's more than anything we could ever imagine. Jesus, we love you. It's your name that we pray this. Amen.